0: There we go. All right. So as I said this morning, we're going to be going over the 1689, Chapter 25 of Marriage. And um, if you don't have a handout, they'll be going around. Uh, or they're actually over there, so grab them over there. But I did want to correct one thing. A couple of weeks ago, I was up here, and I was uh, speaking on oaths, and, and, and um, uh, one of the things that I said was, I wanted to correct the Anabaptist timeline. I, I, I was off just a little bit in the timeline, maybe about a 1,000 years uh, with the Anabaptists. So the, what I had said was that they were around the you know, third, fourth century. They weren't. They were more towards the Reformation. So forgive me for that. And I did want to correct that, because I went back and heard. It. I was like, wait a minute. You know, after I got a question, and I was like, no, I, surely I didn't. But yep, 1,000 years. But um, so I did want to correct that, so apologies for that and the confusion I caused. Um, but this morning we're going to be talking about marriage. This has actually been one of the things that I've been looking forward to talking about. I was able to study a lot of things, uh, and it was a lot of ex- just a lot of excitement around it because I love the story of marriage. I love what God has done. I love what He has instituted in marriage. I love that it, that there's it's nothing short of amazing. Uh, But I do know that the topic of marriage for a lot of people can bring anxiety. Um, You know, those who have been affected by divorce, those who uh, have challenging marriages, those who want to be married, those who may even have been affected by a death of a spouse, etc. So much sin has destroyed uh, and broken marriages and families. And I'm quite sensitive to that, especially because, as some of y'all know, I come from a home where my mom and dad were divorced. So growing up, it affected me quite a bit. Yet that doesn't take away from what God has done and what he has instituted in marriage. When there is darkness from our sin, it is really only the light of Christ that we need to shine into that darkness to see how he has redeemed even the darkest of things. So that's what we're going to try to do today. As some of you know, I do love stories, and marriage is one of those very present examples of a grand story that God is telling and hearing what the Lord has instituted in marriage, the story he is telling through marriage, is amazing and good. And though we may have bad examples in our culture, those around us and even for us personally, the biblical truth about marriage is so good and redemptive. Years ago, I took a group of co-workers through the book of Ephesians as an outreach thing. Um, and this was in California, so a lot of, that was met with a lot of different kind of varying views on scripture and on everything else. When I got to chapter 5 and, and talking about marriage and the biblical roles of man and woman, I wasn't quite sure how they would take it. So I, all I did was just try to go through as faithfully as possible what God's word says in Ephesians 5. And the response actually was really good because they had never heard something like that. They had never heard what it tr- how God truly instituted men and women to behave and to interact and to what he has instituted and ordained through marriage. And it was actually refreshing for them. So that was kind of a surprise for me. Um, one guy wasn't. He wasn't more of egalitarian. But uh, the, other, the other ladies were really happy to hear that this was how God really instituted things. So that was kind of uh, exciting to see. But today uh, we'll be starting our discussion about uh, what God has created in marriage. Then we'll read from the 1689 and, and go through how it defines marriage and advises those who are considering marriage. So... Let's jump in, before we read those first paragraphs in the 1689, I'd like to go to Genesis chapter 2. I'll read Genesis 2, 7 through 8, but can somebody grab verses 18 through 25 after I'm done? Thank you, Justin. All right, Genesis 2, 7 through 8. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Justin? 18 through 25, thanks. The Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make them, I will make them a helper, a fit for him. So, I wanted to start here because this obviously is the first marriage, right? This is where we get a lot of our theology uh, on marriage about, and uh, I want to set the background and and set the uh, backdrop for what we're going to be talking about from the 1689. So, obviously, through this passage, there are a lot of different truths, uh, but a few things I wanted to highlight about marriage. One is that it's not good to be alone. So, your first blink there is alone. That man was created to be relational. So a suitable helper was not found among the parade of animals that God had provided. All of creation is good. And even if we have an affinity towards animals and creation, it won't fit the bill. But no other created thing, though it is good, is suitable for us as as others uh, who are created in God's image. So God created woman so that man would not be alone. And while Adam slept, God took a rib from his side. John Piper, in his book *This Momentary Marriage*, I think had a good uh, good point about this. He said that that Eve was not created from a piece of Adam's head to be over him. Eve was not created from a piece of, of Adam's foot to be under him. But Eve was created from man's side, so that she would be uh, she would demonstrate that demonstrates her equality with Adam and their partnership together as man and wife. So Eve was created to be a helper to Adam, so that like... So second blank there, which we'll get into a little bit more. The 1689 does talk about uh, suitable helper and and, uh, mutual help. So we'll get to that here in a second. But God brought Eve to Adam in the first wedding ceremony. So just like uh, we traditionally have today in our weddings, where the father brings the the wife to the husband, uh, this was done first by God. God was the one who brought Eve to Adam as the heavenly father. Fourth, uh, fifthly, we see that we are to, to leave cleave, in one flesh. In marriage, a man finds a bride. He leaves his family and becomes one flesh <clears throat> um, with his wife, and they, they form a new family unit. Also, we see that they were naked and not ashamed. This is a great verse about the re- a reality in marriage, but it's also a great picture of that first marriage where Adam and Eve were created and given in marriage, and they were naked and not ashamed because there was absolutely no sin and no shame that had come from sin in their lives. They were completely vulnerable with each other, <coughs> and there was no shame in that. Lastly, it's not explicit here, but there is a mystery that is from the beginning. So I do want to read with, uh, alongside with Genesis 2 is Ephesians 5. So let's go there. Would somebody read Ephesians 5, verses 22 through 33? Mike.
1: Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Mm-hmm. through 33. Oh. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother to hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see
0: that she respects her husband. Great. Thanks, Mike. <clears throat> So, we hear from Paul that the ultimate meaning in marriage is to image forth the relationship between Christ and the church. The man, as head of the relationship, images forth Christ, while the woman, in submission to her husband, images forth the church. The man is called to love his wife as Christ loves the church, and the woman is called to submit to her husband as the church submits to Jesus. So, this is the stage, this is the backdrop for what we'll uh, discuss here in the 1689. So let's go back now to the paragraphs in the 1689. And would somebody read each paragraph? So who will take paragraph one? Paragraph two? Paragraph two, keeping it in the family. Paragraph three, (laughs) Brittany. And paragraph four, who's going to duke it out? Ah, Charlene got it. All right. Marriage is to be between one man and one woman. Neither is it lawful for any man to have more than one wife, or for any woman to have more than one husband at the same time.
2: Marriage was ordained for the mutual help of husband and wife, for the increase of mankind with a legitimate issue, and the preventing of uncleanness. It is lawful for all sorts of people to marry, who are able with judgment to give their consent. Yet it is the duty of Christians to marry the Lord, and therefore such as profess a true religion, should not marry with infidels or idolaters, neither should such as are godly, be unequally yoked by marrying with such as are wicked in their life or maintain damnable heresy. Marriage
3: ought not to be within the degrees of consanguinity or affinity, forbidden in the word, nor can such incestuous marriages ever be made lawful by any law of man or consent of parties, so
0: as those persons may live together as man and wife. Great. Thank you, guys. Four, four simple paragraphs with some very uh, simple uh, dis- points that the that they confession uh, authors wanted to make. Uh, but you know, first, we want to make sure that we define marriage properly. Um, so paragraphs one and two go over what, how is a, what, is, what defines a marriage, that first point being that it's between one man and one woman. So, which of you youths, I'm going to point to the youths here. Yep, you guys are the, oh, there's some here. I see y'all right there. All right. Which of you youths can give me the $10 theological ism word for what, that, that means that a man and woman have unique and distinct biblical roles? Come on. Huh? There you go. That's my boy. (laughs) I didn't. I didn't. I I did not. I don't need to do an oath either for that. Complementarianism basically means that men and women have been given distinct roles that complement each other. Where in marriages we see that God has ordained men to be primary in leading, and women submit to their husbands. In our house. We use the phrase, "The boy takes the fall, and the girl walks away. This is one that I stole from somebody else, but basically it goes it not only it not only connotes just the, the protection that we as, as men should be doing, so even when Joshua was little, he was given the task that if his, his sisters were in trouble or his mama was in trouble, he would protect them, even if it meant him getting hurt. but also it's for us who, as we're older, to, not, to see that, that men that we are lead to lead out and dying to ourselves so that the girl may have life, which should be true from arguments to actually laying down our lives if the situation requires of it. So though it's not spelled out here in the Confession, we do see complementary roles that Adam and Eve are given or ordained by God in the garden with Adam, as, the head, uh, as Adam is the head and Eve in submission to him. And that plays out in places like where God gave Adam the rules of the garden. It is, and also where we see where Satan was the one who, who, he would primarily addressed uh, Eve in the temptation, and then who it is that God goes to first after the fall. But today's culture, what do we see today? What are the attitudes about marriage today? And this is actually not a rhetorical question, but what attitudes about marriage do we have in today's culture?
3: Not necessary.
0: Not necessary. Yeah.
2: That the other uh, person is made to fill you up and to love you, and everything is about you. Yeah,
0: you use them, right? You get you get out of them what what until until you're done getting that out of them. Disposable. Disposable. Mm-hmm. Anything else? Mm-hmm. Uh, the usurping of the roles, yeah? Yeah, so all those things, it, the disposable nature of, of marriage, the, the using, the, the, the flipping of the roles and, and everything, we see that we see that throughout our culture, and we see you know the divorce, the 50 percent rate um, that is often quoted and even in the church. Uh, but we know that, you know, it, it, especially with uh, divorce, you know, there's really only a few things that Christ, uh, there's only a few things that the Bible says that would be uh, d- uh, divorceable for. But you know, for, in our society, we have the no fault divorce. We have uh, all these things that people just divorce over because they're done, you, you know, getting things out of the next, the other person. Uh, but also, homosexual relationships are called marriages, and that that is not true. They are not marriages, right? And, it, and the sad thing is, is that uh, we see it being normalized in our entertainment, and the culture, and the things that we have. And I really want to make sure that we take great caution because the things that we, we, we take in, and I think a lot of us, especially as adults, um, can probably see it and, and um, parse it out, right? But especially for the for for the younger ones. You know, As you grow up in a culture that's normalizing this, you're, there's great caution should be used to say that, oh, that, that the relationship in there was, was good. I, I would love to love somebody like that, or I would love to, to see something like that and call that normal, call that something good or something. Though you may biblically be able to say that's not right, that homosexual relationships aren't good, the normalization is going to creep in. And it is, it's already, it's almost in every single movie, every single TV show. So I just want to make sure that we are very careful and cautious about what we do take in. What we are seeing and, and holding on to and, and enjoying as entertainment. Because that will creep into those things that come into our mind, will come through our hearts and then out into our actions, right? Uh, also, the uh, the sixty eight eighty nine talks about no plural mar- marriages. So the plural marriages of uh, fundamental Mormons, bigamy in other cultures, polyamory, etc., is completely unbiblical. So, what does that mean, though, about David and a lot of the other men in the Old Testament who had multiple wives? Was it okay back then? No, it was not. Those, that was not okay, um, and it never was meant to be so. So, was, those were sinful relationships. Uh, the 1689 also talks about that it is a mutual help. Marriage is a mutual help. So, you're blank there being mutual. Marriage is for the mutual help of both husband to wife and wife to husband. And as we talked about from Genesis 2, God created Adam and noted that it was not good for him to be alone, and then created a helper suitable for him in Eve. We were created for relationships, and marriage between husband and wife is especially created for helping one another. And also, as we know, Eve was created to be a helpmeet for Adam. So I love this definition from Beaky and Smalley's Reformed Systematic Theology about what it means for a woman to be a helpmeet to her husband. And they say in there that the text from Genesis chapter two, eighteen, and verse 20 centers, centers upon Adam's need for a helpmeet for him or a helper that was suitable to him. The term translated as help, which is azer, is a strong word referring not to a lesser assistant but to someone who supplies strength, even salvation to those in need, God is the help Azer of his people, so I thought that was just a beautiful way to think about it. Um, what it means to be a help meet, not just somebody that that can i think you know naturally or and sinfully we can think of that being a lesser office, so to speak, in the marriage, but it is somebody who supplies strength and help through that relationship. <clears throat> Uh, thirdly, we see that the 1689 talks about having babies. So let's uh, let's read a few passages. Genesis chapter 1, verse 28 is one that I'll grab. And I was going to have Brian read uh, Gen- uh, Psalm 127 because he does have some good artwork, you know, on his... So his wife will take it. It's good. <laughs> but Genesis chapter 1... <clears throat> And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And then Psalm 127. Behold, children
3: are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is of reward. Like arrows in the
2: hand of the warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies and
0: Thank you, Brittany. So those who are married have a warrant from the Lord to be fruitful and multiply. But unfortunately, not all married couples are able to procreate due to various issues. And I do want to also just be careful, too, that this is also not saying that we are like the Roman Catholic Church that says marriage is only for making babies, right? This is something that God has instituted and ordained for marriages to happen. It doesn't always happen, unfortunately. But it also doesn't mean that it is only, that a marriage is only for uh, having babies. All right, lastly, from defining marriage in the 1689, it is to prevent uncleanness. So would somebody read 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 7 and 9? And somebody else, Proverbs 5.18. I get two readers. I can do Proverbs. Thank you, sir. First Corinthians? Thank you, sir.
2: Just 7 and 9. Just 7 and 9, please. Um, but we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the wisdom which has been hidden, which God has predestined before the ages to glory. But just as it is written, things which, ear, which eye has not seen and ear has not heard, and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for.
1: Go ahead
0: with Proverbs, yeah.
1: Let your help be blessed, and rejoice in the life of your view.
0: Thank you, sir. Um, sorry. Give me a quick second. Yeah, that first Corinthians was not right. <laughs> sorry about that. That was, that's my fault there. Uh, Like Andrew from last week, I probably needed coffee or something. Um, But anyways, uh, I'll, I'll correct that. Find a husband, find a wife. And when you do, don't delay the wedding. Then as married couples, fight against the darkness and the temptations that come by enjoying the wife of your youth, as the proverb says. So marriage is given to help fight and prevent uncleanness. All right, so paragraphs three and four then jump into some guidelines. For those who are considering marriage, so basically it says anyone can marry, but I will add the disclaimer. Go back to paragraph one first, right? Go see what paragraph one says. Basically, marriage as created by the Lord and thus ordained by Him, as we see from paragraph one, is one man and one woman, and the confession is open to anyone who, fi- who fits that criteria and consents to it together. So, in this section, as we go through the guidelines, I especially want to appeal to you, youngins, and I and I want to say that, uh, that these are not only helpful guidelines to think about your future spouse, but even your actions today that would be part of the story that you bring into that potential marriage. So as we know from Scripture, as we talked about earlier, what we dwell on in our minds fills our hearts. And then that, what that does then in turn spills over into the actions that we do. So even how you think about that famous person or that classmate or that coworker who may be the cat's meow. How you think about dating, how you approach even flirtatious speech. Am I making you uncomfortable, Abigail? (laughs) How you have, even the flirtatious chatting with the opposite sex will have an impact downstream. So be thoughtful about what you do today. Be careful. And I think if, if I was to ask each of you today who it is that you would like to marry, you would say someone who loves Christ. But do your current thoughts, meditations, and actions reflect that guarded heart today? So trust me, put Christ first and all that you do and think, and he will accomplish his will for you. But who should Christians marry? You're blank there, other Christians. So let's, I, I hope I got this 1 Corinthians verse right. So let's go to 1 Corinthians 7, verse 39. And then Second Corinthians six fourteen. Would somebody grab each of those?
2: The other one was First Corinthians seven two and nine.
0: Seven thirty nine.
2: No seven seven chapter seven verse two and verse
0: nine. Oh, 7. not two. Thank you.
3: <laughs> I knew the Second
0: Corinthians one. Okay. Go
3: for it. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness
2: with lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness?
0: Thank you. And then first Corinthians seven thirty-nine says, A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. All right. So the, the 1689 does point out that we are not to marry infidels idolaters, the wicked or heretics, those who are outside of Christ so just a quick note, the ancient world there were distinctions made between varying degrees of unbelief, so for instance an infidel was one who was without faith and those who direct those were the ones who directly opposed the beliefs and teachings of religion and a heretic was one who fell away from the central teachings of it But the basic gist of it all is that as believers, as Christians, we should not marry with those who do not walk with Jesus. Not only would it be sinful to do as scripture notes and as the confession agrees, but it is also not wise for us to love the Lord, for us who love the Lord to enter into a covenant of marriage with someone who we are supposed to love that does not love our primary love. Secondly, we are to be equally yoked. So, what does equally yoked mean? So, some of you likely already know this, but just to, to kind of re say it again, yoking was an agricultural term. So, basically, you would take two oxen typically to plow a field, and those two oxen would go along and, and plow that field so that seed could be planted. If one of those oxen were weaker than the other, then you have this, this thing that happens where it, it gets off course, right? You get a field that looks a lot, looks not like you would like it to look and it's not going to be very functional. So in yoking, what 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 the bible means by that is finding somebody that can can you can live and and love the lord together and work in concert, work in complementary roles going in the same direction toward loving christ and serving him. And I would even say that there's there's some wisdom too in the amount of yoking. So as you're thinking about marriage and as you're thinking about a potential spouse, you would think that Probably, it would be a little, it'll be a little bit tougher to, to marry somebody who maybe, if you're fully reformed and they're not, or if they're from another denomination, there's going to be considerations. I'll not say you can't, of course, but if, some things you're going to have to iron out before you, before you get married to, to make sure that you're all on the same page. But equally yoked is something that is, is critical and crucial for us. So should we keep it in the family? Let's go to, uh, you know, if we, if we read of Leviticus 18, 6 through 18, um, which says a lot, it's basically speaking to laws against sexual immorality. Uh, but they do apply, of course, to marriage. Um, so we're looking at uh, consang, consanguinity and affinity. Consanguinity basically means blood relations, and affinity means mar- uh, those relations through marriage. So marriage. So basically what we hear from uh, Leviticus 18 is those that are permitted in the Bible is first cousins and further out. And prohibited is anyone closer than a first cousin, whether that be by blood or marriage. And the questions do come up from Scripture, right? What about uh, Abraham and Sarah or the children of Adam and Eve? Uh, but first, one is, is that those weren't typical relationships, right? These aren't typical for, for us and define everything for us. And second, who else would have Adam and Eve's kids married, right? Um, Waldron also mentions that perhaps there are genetic issues that arise um, uh, that arise from close unions may not have been realized during those days, uh, but certainly they are relevant for us today. Those genetic issues. Um, so that kind of brings us to the end. And, you know, what's not mentioned in the Second London Baptist Confession is, you know, about marriage. Is you know that the marriage is meant for the glory of God. That we talk about the profound mystery and ultimate meaning of marriage, as we discussed earlier. Uh, does it go over divorce? Though the, the uh, Westminster Confession does cover uh, divorce in a, in a couple paragraphs, um, which are helpful. Um, and it doesn't go over the biblical roles of men and women. But I do think it is a good start, and it's it's a good outline for for us to, to understand marriage. <clears throat> All right. Well, finished a little bit early. Um, Do you all have any questions you want to go over with marriage? Yes. Why do you think it is not in God's law a prohibition of plural, having more than one wife? Why is it not in... Like, all these other things that uh, are prohibited are explicit in God's law, but that is not... Um, it's a good question. I mean, and we see it from the beginning, right? We do see that Genesis does say one man and one woman, right? It does speak explicitly to that. So I'm not sure that it, I'm not sure he felt it was needed to be more explicit if it's already, already defined in that first marriage, right? So he created, he didn't create three people. He didn't create four or whatever. He created one woman to be with that one man, right? So I think that that's, that's probably why, I mean, I, I can't, Then that's kind of a guess, right? But it, it does seem to make sense, right? Why would, he, why would he do that and put that in his word as, as such? So, that would be my answer to that. Yeah?
2: Um, what do you think the, uh, the 1689 uh, omits those uh, chapter uh, paragraph 5 and six? Man, Mr.
0: I don't know. Um, because even Waldron said that, that those, those were good and, and he wasn't sure why they left them out and maybe it's because you know the Baptists wanted to, to take a stand on something against you know the, but there are a lot of a lot of chapters that, that are wholly the same right I mean aside from a few words here and there from the Westminster um, and a lot of paragraphs even in this are exactly the same as the Westminster so um, I don't know I don't know and, and, and Waldron wasn't really even aware either
2: what, and what's your like what, What's your view? Because the, 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 in the Westminster, it's a divorce. It's because of yep. adultery
0: or uh, uh, discernment. Dissertion. Uh, desertion. Desertion.
2: Um, what's your view on that? What's since my that, view on yeah, it? That, and it's a long, conversation, but just
0: it's a great conversation to have. Um, so when we look at Matthew nineteen, Christ is explicit. You know, it, it's explicit in there, and there, um, that it's it's for. It, Certificate of divorce is, is is okay for those who commit adultery, right? <clears throat> Paul then goes on and later on and says that uh, basically there's you know the, the consent if the person who the unbeliever uh, consents to live with you in marriage to stay in, and hold in that, but if they do not, then you are free. So then there's a lot of interpretation and a lot of gray area in that. Um, you know, for us as a church and what we have put out uh, there is that that marriage and divorce is acceptable. I mean, I'm sorry, divorce due to uh, the adultery is um, an ex- is an acceptable. And d- divorce, if the unbelieving spouse was to leave, uh, is acceptable. So I do think that that, that is in what we see in, the, in Scripture and what we do align with as well. Does that help?
2: Yeah, for so the, what, what the Westminster.
0: Yeah. So I don't know why they left it out. Probably would have been really helpful to keep them, but I didn't write it. So. <laughs> hey, Ted.
3: It really hasn't much changed. God, I mean, it's pretty clear God hates divorce. Yep. And Moses was allowed to give certificates of divorce because of the evil that's in our hearts. Yep. We're looking for an excuse to get away yep. from what God hates. Yep. So all these conversations... Back to the basics. God hates it. He works through it. He does give us freedom to get out of it. That doesn't mean you have to get out right. of it. It's, it's the evil in our hearts that
0: causes it all. I'm glad you said that, Ted. I mean, I, I wholeheartedly agree with you. And that's one thing that we, we tell our kiddos in our home and anything anytime I get a time with anybody else is marriage is good. And going back to what we talked about before, just because there is evil... And sin that has happened and devastated our lives, and whether indirect or indirectly or directly, and what may be in the culture, God's light and what God has put is true and good, and we should go back to this. And marriage is one of those things that, um, yeah i I would counsel my own children to to work as hard as you can. You know, just even even if it was an adulterous thing or whatever, work hard because it is worth it. Because it, because we're going back to what we talked about that backdrop. This is a picture of Christ in His church. I do not want to mess with that. That is that is holy. That is good. And this is a display, especially as a Christian, that I am putting out to the world about what what it means to be a Christian and how Christ loves His church. So I'm going to die to myself so that my wife would live. So that so that Christ's image forth as the one who goes to His bride and His wife lives. Right. So. That, I, I'm glad you said that, Ted. Thank you for sharing. Anything else? Yes. Um,
2: maybe I'm just not understanding this, but in paragraph two, what does it mean when it says for the increase of mankind to be a legitimate
0: issue? Yeah, I wrestled over that too, and I looked it up too, because um, I, I think it's, to be honest, the where I landed with it, it seems like it's just kind of old language, right? With a legitimate issue meaning... Um, Basically, it just, basically it just means having babies when you're married, you know, through the marriage union, you know. Um, I don't, I don't know that there is, and I, there could be, I just, I just, I researched, I tried to look, I couldn't find it, um, what that may mean exactly, but I think that's where I landed after kind of going through a lot of things. All right, anything else? Yeah. Um, when well, we talk about the,
2: uh, adultery as a reason for divorce, what's what's the qualifier? What's, what do we draw the line between? Like, as Christians, we are called Physical. to forgive. so if let's say if if if, so if a spouse cheats in a, in on the other one, they, okay, that's that's it. I'm going to divorce. But uh, Jesus teaching is like if, if your brother offends you seven times, seven times in a day, you forgive him. So shouldn't we forgive our spouse in the case of adultery? And so how, how do you draw the line to when okay uh, the spouse uh, falls into adultery one time, depends, you take it back, you take her back, and back. Or because the way I see it maybe it's when when that other spouse just falls into a into a, a sexual sin that just com- completely just gives them. Herself and self to the, to the world, to that sin. Like, for what point do we draw the line? Is that sit there? Or or are you able to divorce right when you have, when, when, the spouse, when the spouse cheats you?
0: I don't know that there is a black and white answer, but going back to Ted's comment, I'm going to fight. Um, and I'm going to counsel you to fight. And uh, Every situation is different. Um, I don't really know. And this isn't a biblical um, mandate that as soon as that person has a, an adulterous relationship, that, sh- that he or she's out, right? Um, and uh, yeah, so I, I would not, I would counsel you to fight because, again, looking back to Israel and, and us as a people, we are adulterous. We have strayed, and Christ goes back to us uh, all the time, right? He went back to Israel all the time. So, and you look at uh, Gomer and and Hosea. I mean, that's that's a picture there of Christ and the church. So, I yeah, I would. Every situation's different, and I would say seek counsel immediately. Go to your pastor and 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 seek counsel, and brothers and sisters in Christ, and, and go from there. Hold on one second. You had, did you have a comment? I just.
3: Was you you had said all adultery was like physical, but then I think of the scripture um, where Jesus says, you know, if a man has looked lustfully at a woman, he has already committed adultery in his heart. So how do we fit that in with it being just physical? You know, and I mean, in the end, it still is that marriage. You fight for it. It's uh, it's work, and Christ keeps His covenant with us, and if we made this covenant with Him as well as with our spouse then we have a duty to vote to forgive because he forgave us immensely. So, but it's just a question I had in my head because he kind yeah. of differentiates one being physical, but one just being a visually mentally thought.
0: Yeah. And again, I mean, I think every situation is different. Again, seek counsel. Um, but again, my counsel is going to be to fight. Um, and, you know, where we go from there, I, I think it's, it's just, It's up to the Lord and how he may lead in those times. So, sorry, one second. Ted, you had something, Lori? Yes. This is opinion.
1: This is not scripture. But I always thought that God said, you can, this is the one thing that you can get a divorce over. And I think that he said that because he knew how hard, how broken, Yep. that makes a relationship and how hard that is to forgive so I think what he's saying more or less is if you can't fight and you can't move on then you can get a
0: so yeah he does so, allow for I'm it I'm not
1: saying he says you have to
0: right yeah so there is compassion in that and praise God for that he knows our condition he knows how weak and frail we are um and and I, you know that that is a tearing of that one flesh union. It is it is offensive. It is sinful. It is horrible. Um, I'm not saying it's easy. And I can say up here and, and read scripture and, and and say these things. But when you go into that fight, it's going to be dirty. It's going to be horrible. It's going to suck. But bring along your brothers and sisters. Bring along your pastors. Help help is there. God provides the church to, to help, because when you can't fight, like when Moses couldn't hold up his arms anymore, Aaron and her were right there. So that's what we're there for, right? Um, so yeah, I, I I hear you. It is ugly. It's it, it's crappy. Ted? I was going to say, a lot of
3: this um, went when the board, but not to, you know, the Bible has clear rules on it. But so we live in a society that if one... Doesn't come, they go to court. The divorce is going to happen. Mm-hmm. And you may, you may, Christian, I mean, there's some liberty in all of this, but in our society, we're not in a theocracy. That these are cut rules. Uh, and like you said, good counsel. But there is a lot of this Christian liberty to stay in marriage or not to stay in marriage. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, government, you, know, you go to a divorce court. You may not agree, and that other one goes. It's going to happen. It's no divorce. Do we change our hearts and change our, our laws? It's going to happen. Yeah. And so we, you know, we got charity and all of this. It's because one does it and one doesn't. You know, that's the Christian liberty thing. Mm-hmm. To them, God and come to the church. It's hard. It's a mess. We're mm-hmm. cynical people.
0: Mm-hmm. But it's worth fighting for too. Yeah.
2: God commits divorce for adultery, but does he permit remarriage? Because then you have Mark 10, where it says, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and any woman who divorces her husband and marries again commits adultery. So even though divorce is permitted, are they to stay single after one,
0: Or are they allowed to remarry? I mean... Y'all love me being on the hot seat up here, right? Like <laughs> but, it, yeah, I, I was wondering who was going to go there, and you won the prize. <laughs> so, yeah, so, it, again, and going back to what Christ said in Matthew, that, you know, adultery is, you know, is permissible for divorce, and he then, but the remarriage is allowed in that case, that, that if the divorce happens uh, due to adultery, then remarriage is allowed. Um, it's not adulterous then. Uh, but.
3: Would you say remarriage only of the, the party who did not commit the sin?
2: I have wondered. this. Yes. <laughs>
0: yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Sorry. I had to think of what you were saying. Yes, yes. Yes. Um, the desertion part is the, the one that's hotly debated. Um, and again, for where we where we are as elders, and what we have said um, is that no. Um, but you know, yeah, I know that that's hotly debated. What's no to remarriage? So you're you're free in the sense of you know there, there's if the unbeliever leaves you and deserts you, you're you're free in the sense the desires to for, for reconciliation. Uh, the desires that you would then reconcile um, it gets a little messy if they then marry, then they 're committing adultery and you 're kind of then in that Matthew nineteen thing right So then that that gets again. Talk to your pastors. Come seek counsel. It's messy as anything. And again, guys, I, I say this. I come from a marriage. We celebrated our 20th anniversary recently. I praise God for that. I love my bride. I love her so much. I come from where my dad left when I was four years old. And I didn't see him until a long time later, and we reconciled. But that tore us up. I hate divorce. God hates divorce. But seek counsel. Seek your brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, it, even if you're in a marriage that's tough and you're dealing with certain things, seek counsel. Come and get help. We're happy to help, to be there, and to love on you guys. All right. I think that brings us to. I'm off the hot seat now. <laughs> I'm going to pray, and we'll close. Father God, thank you so much. Uh, Thank you so much, Lord. Marriage is a picture of the gospel. And I know that there is sin. I know there is hard, hard things that we walk through, Lord, through marriages and divorce. But Father, we know Christ always went back to his bride. Christ came and pursued us. Christ fought for his bride. So may we as men die to ourselves that our wife may live may may the wives submit and glorify god through submitting as the church submits to christ and may we teach our young ones what it is to truly love in a biblical way through marriage that they would then carry this mantle on and that you would continue to be exalted father we thank you so much for this and we pray now as we go into corporate worship that we would worship the god who pursued a bride